You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for June 2014. Today's episode is titled Kingdom Management. Your view of organizational management is a function of your presuppositions about reality. To build an excellent world-class organization, management must learn and practice a biblical worldview, the only true worldview. The senior leaders must be equally yoked in their understanding of how to practice a biblical worldview organizationally. Furthermore, the senior leaders must learn to develop strategic plans in alignment with the will and ways of God. Then the strategic plan must be executed with excellence, congruent with a biblical worldview. Finally, the customers or clients served by the organization will help validate how well the organization is aligned with the will and ways of God. And now, Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, Kingdom Management. I want to give you a taste of what I think is a biblical perspective on management. In particular, what it is to build teams. I'm going to start out by telling you a story. In 1824, the Scottish Presbyterians decided to establish a mission station in South Africa. And this was a very interesting experience because South Africa was a very pagan place. A lot of tribal warfare, barbarianism of every kind. There was no real productive work as you and I would know. It was just a terrible place to be. The presupposition that the Presbyterians had was all these people need is the gospel. Now, when they say gospel, it's probably defined a little differently from the way you and I would define it. I think we would define the gospel as a very all-inclusive message about the kingdom of God. But their gospel was very limited to just preaching the cross of Christ, which is a huge part of the gospel. Don't get me wrong. It is a big, big part of it, the central part of it. But that's all they really did was go and share the gospel. So what happened after... 40 years of doing this is they virtually had no converts. Has anybody ever experienced that? You know, where you go out and share the gospel with people, pass out tracts, do whatever it is you do to try to share the gospel. You do it over and over and over and over and over again and nothing happens. Well, after 40 years of this, they got frustrated and they became good pragmatic people and they said, we're going to cut our losses here and we're going to get out of Dodge. And so that's what they did. And see, the problem here is a problem that's very common today. And that is our perspective on what Christianity is, is limited to evangelism. And then when you say, what is Christianity in the marketplace, you might add ethics. In fact, I've spent a lot of time trying to sell this particular venue and the business school that's going to follow this venue. And I'm finding a lot of people asking me questions like, Well, what more is there to Christianity but to be ethical and share the gospel? Isn't that pretty much all there is to it? And believe it or not, there's a lot of people that feel that way. How many of you have run into that in trying to sell this message? Okay, a number of you have run into it. It's very common. It's almost ubiquitous in Christianity that that's pretty much what it means to be a Christian in the marketplace. Now, an illustration of this I noticed in Business Reform Magazine about a year ago. There was a discussion in that magazine about end times. And they asked the question here, why should Christians go into business? Now that's a very good question. You know, if we really love the Lord and want to walk with Him, what are we doing in business? Okay, now there were two answers given. Answer number one by Tommy Ice was, our basic calling as a Christian believer is to preach the gospel and build up others in the faith. That's option one. Behind door number two is... Gary DeMar, he says, a business person is to use one's talents in a way that focuses on more long-term opportunities, taking Christian dominion in business industries. Evangelism serves as a secondary emphasis. I think most of us would pick door number two. I trust that anyway. But the vast majority of the Christian community that you and I live around probably is picking door number one. We have to understand that's the backdrop against which we work. What that does is it produces an environment where Christians put wrappers around worldly practices. You know what Christian wrappers are? Okay. Well, Christian wrappers are, if I'm a Christian and I do it, it's okay. You ever seen that? You know, there's no thought as to, well, where did this principle come from? Now, let me give you some examples here. Suppose that you ask a typical Christian, what's the reason for being in business? Now, what kind of answer would you hear? 
Make money. Make money is the big one, okay? Which obviously providing for family falls out of that. But largely it's to make money. And you'll hear even more than that. You'll hear things like, we need to make money to sow into the kingdom. Okay? So what it's saying is that what we're doing in the marketplace is really not kingdom work. The kingdom work is done by the pastors and Dennis Peacock. They do the kingdom work. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't support SCS. Don't hear that. Okay? <laughs> we need to support SCS. But we need to understand what Dennis and the pastors are. They are equippers. What are we? We're ministers. That's what Ephesians 4 says. We are ministers. And that's hard for us to get because we keep thinking that Dennis is the minister. You hear, I didn't say a minister, the minister. Okay? We keep thinking that. We're just kind of his supporters. No. We're the ministers. He's the equipper. He's equipping us to go out and do the ministry. So most Christians just totally miss the opportunity for ruling and bringing the kingdom of God into whatever sphere of influence they have. I don't care what you do. If you push a broom, you can bring the kingdom of God into how you push the broom. My wife is a teacher at a school, and she was telling me about their janitor. And their janitor was getting overloaded, so they offloaded some of his work, and they hired a janitorial service to come in and do some of the work. Well, what happened was this janitorial service didn't do a very good job. And the janitor there takes such pride in his work, he asked the company, would you get rid of them and let me take it on? I'll figure out some way to get it done, because I want to do it well. That's kingdom thinking. We don't think that way, because we're thinking about making the money and get out of here so we can go to the work of ministry wherever that is. We don't think about work of ministry when we push that broom. That's the problem we have. Now, another example, employment. Most of you probably think people are fungible. Do you know that? You know what people are fungible means? They're interchangeable. People are interchangeable. We do not have a high level of understanding of personal purpose and destiny. You know how we know that? Because we have the wrong view of employment. We think employment is an entitlement. Okay? We think it's cruel to fire somebody. Those of you who manage people, I'm sure you face this. It's coming toward the end of the year, and Joe's not working out. It's not Joe Collinger. Joe's not working out, okay? But can't fire him, you know, right before Christmas. That'd be mean. See, there's this thinking that about firing people is bad. You know, every time I think about this, I think about what the Lord said to Moses about Pharaoh. He said, you need to tell Pharaoh to let my people go, okay? Because the reality is, People are created by God for a purpose. Everybody that walks this planet has a purpose. Everyone in this room has a purpose. The greatest thing I can do to help you is help you find your purpose. Is there anything I can do better to bless you than that? You know what happens when people find their purpose? The yoke is easy and the burden is light. That's what happens. It's a flow. My wife, more than anybody I know, walks in her destiny. And you know how I know that? Well, several reasons I know that. Number one is she gets up at 4.30 in the morning to work out, have her quiet time, change clothes five times, and be out the door at 7 o'clock. Okay? But she does it every day. She does it with a smile. The other thing about it is I get all these accolades, everybody telling me how great she is. I get all this verification from other people. Another thing that I know about her is she would do this for free. There's nothing in her that's driven to do this for money. That's how you know somebody's walking in their destiny. And we've got to get it. Employment is not entitlement. Employment is about helping people find their place. Mortgage banking. How many of you have let a mortgage banker define the size of the mortgage you could afford? Be honest. Raise your hand. Okay. Probably virtually everybody in this room has done this. Let a mortgage banker tell you how big a house you can afford. Now, I don't care if it's a Christian mortgage banker. You know what formula they use? This is what's used in Texas anyway. Generally, what they do is they have a guideline it's called the 28% rule, and they apply that to your total income, and that's your total housing expense. You know, they subtract out utilities and taxes and insurance, and then they back into the size of mortgage that you can afford based on the interest rate. I'm sure all of you can do that computation. 
But that's what they do. And then they tell you, John, you can afford a $250,000 house based on our formula. Okay? Now, this is an example of Christian rappers. You may be dealing with a Christian mortgage banker, but he's using this 28% rule. I'm going to give you a paradigm to consider that I think is more biblical in approaching finances. First of all, the first thing you should do with your money is your first fruits. Okay? Tithe, or however you practice the principle of first fruits, that's the first thing. And I put a percentage of 10% just as a typical percentage. Okay? I'm not being rigid about that. I'm trying to give you a sense of how to look at this. Do you understand that most of us, when we get money, we look at it as how we're going to spend it on us? Okay, what I'm getting ready to show you is an upside-down model to what most of us think. I like to talk to young people because young people get out of college, they're dead broke, and they go get a job, and all of a sudden they got a bunch of money. I say, what do you think first? They say, well, I'm thinking about the car I want to buy and the house I want to get. I said, well, is that biblical? And, of course, the answer is, what's the Bible got to do with this? I want to enjoy the good things in life. Well, I think the Bible gives us a paradigm for how to prioritize our money. So the first thing is first fruits. The next thing is taxes. We're supposed to pay our taxes. The next thing is reserves and investment. In the house of the wise are stores of choice food and oil. Luke 19 is about stewardship. If you're going to be faithful in little to get more, you've got to have the little to be faithful with. If you spend all of it, you don't have a little left. So you've got to have something left so you can multiply it. So you've got to have reserves and investments. And I just threw 10% out there. Then how about gifts? Do you realize that you will prosper if you give to others? That's what Proverbs says. You want to prosper? You'd be generous. And then finally, you're left with the consumption or living expenses. If you add all these up, basically you got 50 cents on the dollar for consumption. That probably shocks most of you because that's not generally the way we live. Now, these percentages are strictly for illustration. You may have different convictions, but I suggest that you need a model similar to this, and you need to start with first fruits prioritizing down, and the last thing is self-consumption. If you agree with this model, you realize, and if you let your mortgage broker use the 28% rule, you have spent over half of your consumption budget on housing. How many of you could live on that? Is this not the definition of being house poor? Now, the question is, are you living where you're supposed to be living? Oh, that is really a tough one. If you've let a mortgage banker use the world's ways of looking at money to tell you where to live, maybe you should reconsider. Because the reality is you can't put a Christian wrapper around that practice and sanctify it. It doesn't work. The question we all have is who makes the rules of the game? The world has rules. We as Christians need to learn, are we going to obey the world's rules? Or we're going to obey God's rules. You really only have two options here. Option one is people make up their own rules. And this is what the Pharisees did. Jesus talked about the Pharisees' teaching. He said it's but rules taught by men. That's what's generally practiced in the world. It's what's generally practiced by most Christians. Do you all agree with that? You saw what you see? That's what I see. Most Christians that I run into, unless they're engaged at the level we're talking about at this conference... They're pretty much making up their own rules. Option two is the creator of the universe, when he made the universe, he made the rules. If he made the rules, then don't you think it makes sense that we need to abide by his rules? I mean, I think about this. I step back and just look at it logically. I said, this makes no sense to try to make up my own rules. If I really believe that the creator made the universe, then I've got to believe he defined truth and reality for me in every way that I live. Personally, as a family, in the church, in business, in the government, he's got to make up all the rules. So the question really is, what are the rules? The question is not who makes the rules. The question is, what are the rules? Now, what I want to do is I want to share with you some models that I use that help me in understanding the, the perspectives that are going on. This is a model of what I call fool dualism. Now, you notice there's five circles. And the circle in the middle is the church. And the reason it's in the middle is because it is the chief jurisdiction in that to a Christian, it should define all the rules for all the games. Now, in a full dualistic model, you can see there's no connection between the church and any other jurisdiction. There's no connection at all. There, there are five independent circles. 
That's pretty much the view today. It's a very common view today. That Christianity, the Bible, the church, all of that, we wrap that up and put that out there and it, we isolate it from everything else. It has nothing to do with the rest of reality. Clearly the world believes that, but there are a lot of Christians that believe that as well. A lot of professing Christians. Now the second model is called partial dualism. And in this model, now you see you've got arrows going from the church to the individual and church to the family. What that means is the church is defining now the rules for the individual and the family. And there are a lot of Christians that would say, yeah, I believe that. Yeah, I think that's the way I want to live. I want to, I want to walk with God. I want to know God. And I want him to be relevant to my family. And so, yeah, I can, I can agree with that. But what's the church got to do with business? I mean, there's no connection there at all. Or what's the church got to do with government? There are a lot of Christians that believe that. They're buying into the separation of church and state that you hear today. You guys all understand that, that we've twisted the definition of church and state. I assume you know. Well, just to be sure. When our founding fathers came here, they came from where? England. And what was going on in England at the time they came? It was a church that was run by the state. They saw that as very abusive. That was a very difficult environment. They left that environment. So when they came here, their perspective is, we are not going to allow the state to run the church. So we're going to put a separation here to protect the church from the state. Now, what we've done is so natural, we've twisted it. Now we're saying, oh, we've got to protect the state from the church. And we're doing that fanatically. This morning, I got an email from my father-in-law. And uh, he doesn't normally send me emails. And he forwarded this email. The ACLU apparently has starting a campaign to remove crosses from public facilities. And then the email went on to say, well, take a look at this. And it shows a picture of a cemetery where our military dead are buried. And guess what's in the picture? Bunch of crosses. Okay. Oh, really? You're going to go remove all of those crosses? Is that what we're going to do? Is this where this is going? This is the skewed environment that we're in with misunderstanding of church and state. And we've got to begin to educate our brothers that the reality is partial dualism doesn't work. It is not biblical. What is biblical is the integration of you. And the integration view is where the church is the pillar and ground of truth for all jurisdictions. And you see now you've got arrows pointing out to every jurisdiction. Because the church is defining the rules for all the games now. For the individual game, for the family game, the work game, government game, we're looking to, this now is our handbook. You got this? This is the handbook for all of life. It's not just the Bible. It becomes the handbook that gives us the principles and practices by which we will prosper as we obey and align ourselves with God. This is an article from World Magazine. Joe, I hope you're not offended that I going to use other journals here, but this is a very interesting discussion. Those of you that are familiar with Baylor University, it's a Baptist university in uh, Waco, Texas. There's a very interesting debate going on there. The current president of the university has an initiative going on. It's called 2012. His agenda is this. He wants to increase the scholarship and the Christian perspective that is articulated by this university over the next eight years. Now, he's being opposed by the former president of the university and about 20% of the faculty, the old guard faculty. And you'll see from the highlights here, in the middle column there, it says the issue comes down to two different assumptions about the Christian faith. And Herbert Reynolds, the former president, is articulating this. Now, the next paragraph, it starts out, he says that Baptists do not believe in creeds of any kind. That is purely inward and that individuals are, have so competency to form their own theology, he holds to a two spheres approach in which faith has nothing to do with the pursuit of objective knowledge. Did you hear that? This is called dualism. This is full dualism. We have isolated Christianity in a little bitty sphere here, and we've removed it from any kind of intellectual pursuit. So we're saying Christianity has nothing to do with being intellectual. There's nothing about this rational about it all. It is purely a matter of personal conviction. You leave it in your heart and you do not share it outside. In fact, he goes on in the article and talks about when he was president, it was not okay to pray before meals at school. 
You didn't talk about your faith in any classroom setting at all. Faith was totally eradicated from everything that Baylor did. And that's easy to see. Hopefully all of us can see that immediately. What was interesting about this article, though, was it was written by a partial dualist. Right? I mean, I was hoping it was written by somebody that fully believed in the integration of biblical Christianity in every sphere of jurisdiction, but it was not. This gentleman is a partial dualist. And the way we know that is this bottom of this middle column. Notice what he says. That God rules the world in a different way than he rules the church doesn't mean that God has nothing to do with the world. Really? God rules the church differently from the way he rules the world. So where are these principles? Okay, so do we have another book? Does anybody have another book? There must be a second book that tells us, is this the book for the church? And is there another book here for the, the business? Well, you see what I'm getting at? I mean, this guy professes, I'm sure, to be a very strong Christian, and he's articulating a biblical worldview, supposedly. But he's shown us that he really doesn't have a full integrationist approach. Does that surprise you? Doesn't surprise me at all. Now, I want to share this with you. This is just kind of something that helps me. This is not in your notes. And if any of you want the models that I'm showing you right here, which are not in your notes, if you want those, send me an email. I will send you the PowerPoint presentation. I'll be happy to send that to you. But what this is, is a picture of how I process information, how I view information. I think this is a biblical model. Now, I want you to notice the very top is special revelation, which is the handbook for all of life. This is it. Okay, now I have to have ways to interpret this. Now, on the right, you'll see, I recognize the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. Has anybody ever read scripture and got nothing? You ever had that experience? And then other times you read it and it's like it's jumping off the pages at you. My interpretation of that, that is illumination. When I see it's coming alive to me and it's ministering to me and it's taking me on my knees, that's the Holy Spirit at work in me. So I believe very strongly in the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit to help me understand what this book says. Furthermore, I have a hermeneutic. That's not a disease. Some people think it's a disease. It's not. It is a principle that you use to interpret the Bible. Now, I happen to use a grammatical historical hermeneutic, which means that I take the Bible for what it says. In other words, when I read in here, it talks about Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. I don't think he's talking about literal sheep. I think he's talking about us. If he's talking about my sheep hear my voice, then we're not hearing God's voice. We need to go find a sheep and follow the sheep. The point is the scriptures should be interpreted normally like you would any other piece of literature. I got a big kick out of Diane Sawyer's interview with Mel Gibson. I don't know if you did it, but did you notice her question about, do you take the Bible literally? And he said, well, you made a normal answer. Yes, I do. Of course, you need to expand on that. What does that mean? What she meant by it is what I think most unsaved people mean by it is every little word is exactly true. Well, it is true, but you have to understand the literature. There is symbolic literature in scripture. And you interpret it there. There's historical literature. There's poetic literature. There's all kinds of different styles in Scripture, and that's okay. That's okay. So I interpret the literature based on why I would interpret any other literature. If I'm reading poetry, I recognize I'm reading poetry. I interpret it accordingly. So that's the grammatical historical approach. The historical side is I take it in the context in which it is written. I don't just pull things out of context. I'm looking at the backdrop against which the text is written. That's the way I come at Scripture. Now, I have help in interpreting Scripture from people like Dennis and Norm and others that are scholars that speak to me or write biblical commentaries. They're giving me a perspective of Scripture, and I always use the Berean principle to validate it. When I first met Dennis, I remember the, the challenge for me was to always figure out where he, he would come up with these pithy little sayings like God pays for what he ordered. You've heard that saying? I'd say, no, wh- where is that in Scripture? So I would run back to my room. These were at conferences. Scramble to try to find, where is this? And invariably I would find the principle that he was talking about in Scripture. Now I began to realize God was giving him such an incredible gift to capsulize these principles in ways that would really impact me. That would really grab me. And so I really began to appreciate that. But I was following the Berean principle to search the scriptures to see if what he said was indeed true. So that's how I'm approaching the Bible. Now you see I've got double arrows down to general revelation. 
General revelation is everything else. It's everything else. Research of business, research in medicine, research in science, you know, everything else comes under general revelation. And I realized very early in the game that scientific research is very valid because it's an act of subduing if it's done with an understanding of a biblical worldview and submitting the results back up to Scripture. So you've got a two-way arrow. The arrow coming down is the biblical worldview that I need to properly interpret what I'm doing and properly approach how I'm doing with God's principles. The arrow back up is submitting my conclusions to the Word of God. Say, is this indeed true? And I've got supporting materials here. I've got textbooks, business books, all kinds of other books. In fact, every book that's ever written, it's either going to be a commentary on the Bible or it's going to be a supporting book to my work in understanding general revelation. Every book. Fiction, nonfiction, it doesn't matter. The ultimate authority is here. It all has to be filtered through this. Does this help you guys? Get an understanding of... This is what helps me really keep myself straight about information and how to process it, how to understand it. Okay, let's talk about kingdom management. What kingdom management is not? This is a very common perception that I see today. It's called kingdom now. Does anybody run into kingdom now? If you haven't run into kingdom now, you will run into kingdom now as you begin to articulate a message of what we talk about dominion. When we're talking about dominion, we're talking about simply obeying the Word of God in every jurisdiction of life. That's all we're saying. We're not trying to get eschatological on this. We're not trying to say what we're going to do is going to usher in the return of Christ. Though it may. I don't profess to have any understanding of that. And I haven't heard the people that articulate the message we're trying to put forward articulate that. What we're trying to say is that Jesus Christ is relevant in everything we do. That is the message. So what it is, is we want to learn as managers to submit to the rule and the reign of the king at work, at home, in my personal life, in my church, and how we run our government. Everything we do, we want to submit to the rule and reign. So what does this mean? We allow the king to define the principles and values of every jurisdiction. And finally, what does it produce? What do you think it produces? Change, transformation, alignment with the king. Isn't that what we're after? That's the name of the game. That's the end product here is to get lined up with the king. Now, what's the impediment here? The big impediment to make all this happen. It's called idolatry. Idolatry is the impediment. It keeps us from walking in the reality of biblical worldview and everything we do. Now, let me give you an example of this. A common idol today is money. We heard Earl talk about money last night, so let me just build on that a little bit. Let me just walk you through what happens when you worship money. Now, this is just one scenario. I mean, there could be other scenarios, but this is one potential scenario that you could go through. First of all, if you worship money, it could lead to debt. Has anybody experienced that? Worship money leading to debt? Debt leads to the need of job security to pay off the debt. You've got to have cash flow now. Because you've got, every first of the month, you've got to write a check. So now I've got to have that job. And when you've got to have a job, what happens is you get into boss-pleasing and brown-nosing. That's what happens. Got to have that job. I keep, the only way I can keep that job is I'm going to keep my boss happy. So as you begin to brown-nose, what happens is your creativity and your ability to be productive is gone. It's not on the radar anymore because I'm focused on boss-pleasing. And you know what happens when you do that? You don't change anything. There's no change agent in you at all. In fact... What Proverbs twenty two sixteen says is it leads to poverty. Brown nosing leads to poverty. Oh, bite on that one a while. And that's what happens when we worship. Any idol, it takes you through a series of steps to where you see you are not doing anything that glorifies God. You're not making a difference. So what, what is kingdom of management work? I'm going to suggest to you five key building blocks to kingdom management at work. These are things... I submit to you, I don't care what kind of organization you're in. You can be a church, you can be a nonprofit, you can be a business, you can be a school, you can be a hospital, you can be a government agency. I don't care what kind of organization you are. If you'll follow these five building blocks, you can be world class. And if you're world class, you will bring honor to God. Does everybody believe that? 
If I'm world-class at what I do, I'm really going to bless some people. My wife is a world-class teacher. Okay? And the way I know that is I continually get people coming to me and telling me stories about how she's blessed them. Parents coming to me and saying, she taught us how to pray because she taught my child how to pray. My child taught me how to pray. Is that not a change agent? That's world class. She is highly regarded. She's got so much regard the school she's in. She has so much political capital that she doesn't have a clue how much political capital she has. She can ask for anything, but she's not going to do that. But she has that because she is committed to walking in biblical reality and following these five key principles. Okay, number one, biblical worldview. Not surprising. I submit to you that you cannot have a world-class organization, really world-class, without biblical worldview. Now, I know what you're going to say. Well, well, I've read good to great. Well, I did too. You know, good to great. Let me tell you what good to great is. It's a book by an Eastern mystic. It's about seven or eight principles that he discovered that make good organizations become great organizations. He spent 10 man years and a million dollars writing that book. And you know what he discovered? He discovered this works. That's what he discovered. I could have saved him the money. Okay? We could have invested it in the kingdom. But he didn't ask. There are other projects out there. How many of you have read Discovering the Soul of Service by Leonard Berry? Has anybody read that? You guys need to pick that book up. That's an Aggie professor. We have to bless Aggie professors. But guess what he's discovered? He's discovered the same thing. Lo and behold, this works. And he spent who knows how many years and how many millions of dollars figuring that out. Okay? There's another project called the Evergreen Project. Anybody heard of that project? It's a five-year project. You've heard of that? Good. Did you read the Harvard Business Review on that? Last summer, Harvard Business Review published about a 10-page article on the Evergreen Project. A five-year study... And the title of the article was, What Works? You understand that's where business is? Business is very pragmatic. What works? He came up with four key principles that make really great organizations. What do you think he discovered? He discovered this, this works. This is it. All these professors, all these studies, are all, they're validating the reality that the Bible works. And they don't know they're doing it. I have yet to see any of them recognize the connection to the Bible. Because dualism is so strong in them, they can't see it. So, I'm in the midst of writing a book right now. Guess what I'm going to say? It works. That's what I'm going to say, is it works. One of the chapters, in fact, the chapter I'm writing right now, is I'm going through all these different studies, tying those studies to my model to show that all the models that are out there are actually fit under my model, and they are partial models. They don't include the whole truth. Now, I'm not professing I include the whole truth, but I'm trying to give a more complete model. And the elements of my model are simply this. Number one, biblical worldview. Number two, equally yoked senior leaders. Number three, strategic planning. Number four is executional excellence. And number five is validation by your customer or clients. That's the key right there. Those are the building blocks to make excellent organizations of any type. Now, let's just go into these real quickly. I've just got a few minutes here. The foundation for a biblical worldview is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. When I read the fear of the Lord, you know what I interpret that as? Biblical worldview. Because whatever I fear, I worship. Is that true for you? Whatever you fear, you worship? If you fear lack of money, what are you going to do? You're going to worship money. Okay? If you fear lack of influence, what are you going to do? You're going to worship somebody that may have influence. Well, the same way here. Whatever you fear is what you worship. So the starting point for a biblical worldview is to getting right with God. He's God, and I'm the creator, which means he gets to make all the rules. And I don't really have a, a thing, one, to say about it. And that's hard. We don't like that because we like to think we can do things. And surely we know how to do things well, don't we? We're intelligent people, aren't we? So we like to think we ought to have a, a role to play. God, I don't like how you made the universe. You know, I don't like the way that your son had to die on the cross. I don't like that. You, have you all watched The Passion yet? I saw it Wednesday. It's a very moving experience. It's brutal. Absolutely brutal. And you walk away from that and say, oh, man. 
Why did you have to do it that way, Lord? I don't know why he had to do it that way, but he did. My job as someone who's a created being is to submit to the rule of the creator. Okay? Whatever it is you say, Lord, whatever you want to do, I submit to that. So that's the beginning point, is getting humble before God, submitting to a biblical worldview. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of a biblical worldview. Biblical worldview provides principles, practices, and values required by the king. So now, okay, if I've got a biblical worldview, now I'm going to go into business. Where are the principles that I'm going to use to run this business? So now I'm looking here to the handbook of organizational excellence and prosperity. Did you know that's what this is? This is the handbook of organizational excellence and prosperity, also known as the Bible. Okay, How many of you have been to university and studied this? A few of you have. Most of you, when you walked into that first business class, did they hold this up and say, this is the handbook for business? No, they don't do that because we're partial dualists. You were probably taught by partial dualists. And one of the things that Dennis is trying to teach us, and you will learn in the school, is that we have wrong thinking that's been programmed in. And what you got to do is you got to purge that thinking so you can think biblically. So the starting point here is worldview. We hit this real hard for a reason, because this is hard to get. Everything within us resists this because we want to rebel just like Satan did. You know, surely we know a better way than what God's doing here. And come on, God, I mean, what's this got to do with managing people? What's this got to do with profit? They didn't tell me anything about accounting. If I want to do a leverage buyout, where do I find that here? What you find are the principles that you use to deal with those things here. So you've got to get it. Worldview is the foundation. The degree of blessing that any organization enjoys is directly related to its alignment with God. Now, all of us have seen a lot of companies prosper. And I'm going to use Southwest Airlines as an example. Southwest Airlines happens to be based in Dallas, happens to also be big in my portfolio. So I'll put that out as a disclaimer. I really like Southwest Airlines. About six months ago, I had lunch with one of the executives, and my purpose was multifold. I wanted to really understand more about what's going on inside, and I was particularly interested to know why it is that you are so fanatical in this organization about following the golden rule. And he told me the story of how Herb Kelleher, one of the founders and really the shaping force of Southwest Airlines, grew up in the Northeast. And in the home he grew up, which was not particularly a religious home, his mother instilled in him the value of people. And so Herb Kelleher to this day practices the principle of the golden rule fanatically. I'm told that if you talk to Herb, he'll come up to you and he'll engage you and he totally focuses on you until the conversation's over. It doesn't matter what's going on around him. He's focused on you. Tremendous people skills. So he has taken one principle, one biblical principle, the golden rule, and he applies it and forces it throughout the organization. Everybody in this organization practices the golden rule. That's what it is. At the end of the day, I want you to look at what it's produced. I'm gonna, in the last slide, you'll see this, but it's phenomenal, the foundation that this has laid for blessing in this company. And it blesses the stockholders, too. Okay, the next step is equally yoked senior leaders. Now, all of you have read that verse, I'm sure, a hundred times, a thousand times, whatever. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness, right? You've read that. And when you read that, what do you think? It applies to marriage, right? That's how we use it, correct? We're good partial dualists. Because there's nothing in the text that says anything about marriage. I read the whole text. I read all of chapter 6, I read chapter 7. There's nothing that talks about marriage in that text. Why is it that we apply it just to marriage? Huh? Well, being good partial dualists, we've compartmentalized that truth into the family. That's where it goes. It doesn't apply into government or into business. It just applies in the family. So what we've done is we've missed a key ingredient to great organizations, and that is being equally yoked. I wish I had a, a yoke up here to illustrate this to you, but the reality is being equal to yoke implies some very significant things about your organization. Number one is you've got to have similar worldviews. If you don't have similar worldviews, you're going to have what? Conflict. Conflict. All of you have had teenagers, and you've had conflict. What is the root of your conflict? 
you have different worldviews. Okay? My daughter, when she was a teenager, thought she could do a lot of things that I didn't think she could do. We had different worldviews on what she could and couldn't do. That's what happens with anybody. How many of you had conflict, serious conflict in your organization? Everybody in this room has had conflict. You look back at that conflict, most likely you had a worldview disconnect with whoever it is you had the conflict with. That is unequal yoking. Another way to be unequal yoked is unequally yoked in maturity. You may be trying to accomplish something in an organization with someone that's not nearly as mature as you are. Now what's going to happen there? You're going to have some rub there. They may be well-meaning people on a good road of growing with God, but you're way out ahead of them. Okay? It isn't going to work very well. So you've got to pay attention to the maturity level of people. Another thing you've got to do is look at the gifting. We have got to learn to embrace diversity. God puts a big value on diversity. My wife and I learned the hard way how precious and how valuable and effective we could be when we worked together. When we took our complementary giftings and put them together and made decisions together. That's the value of diversity. Finally, equal health. You realize that health can be not only physical, it can be emotional and spiritual. If you've got hurts and pains, wounds, unforgiveness, issues of the past that are holding on to you, you know where you are when you've got that going on in you? You're in jail. That's where you are. You're in jail. You're in bondage. And if you're part of an organization that's trying to move forward and everybody else in the organization is reasonably healthy and you're in bondage, what are you going to do? You're going to drag the organization back. Good management recognizes that and has to deal with that. Now, I don't mean in an unkind way, but they have to deal with it and recognize if we as an organization are called to go down the field and score a touchdown, I've got to have everybody in the right position. If I have a bunch of very thin, lanky, split ends playing guard and tackle, what's going to happen to me as a quarterback? I'm going to get hurt big time. Big time. I've got to have everybody in the right place. They've all got to be healthy. They've got to be committed to the game. They've got to be focused on going down the field. That's what an equally yoked team does. Everybody doing his thing in the right place, right gifts, right talents, right skills, healthy, focused, and then you can have things happen. What Southwest Airlines does that's so beautiful is they hire based on, guess what? Values alignment. Values alignment. That is the number one criteria for them. They look at somebody, and when they bring them on board, one of the first things they do is they try to discern, does this person line up with who we are and what we're trying to do? Because if they don't, we bless them and release them. Because we know we can't go for the goal unless we have everybody on board and equally yoked. The third principle here is strategic planning. Now, this is a verse out of Luke. If you want to build a tire, those of you that are in the construction business understand this well. You know, before you start to build a building, you better sit down and do a very, very good cost estimate. And you better take off everything that's relevant. Now, you don't get down to nut bolts and screws, but you do it in enough detail that you've got everything covered. Okay? When I was in the mechanical business, we did a lot of estimating. And we learned the hard way that things almost always cost more than you think. Has anybody learned that the hard way? You learn that because you wind up going over budget and losing money. And then you figure out, ha, ah, that wasn't very smart. So you got to really learn how to count the costs and count it well. So strategic planning, first and foremost, is long-term. you got to have a vision out there. i got to know where I'm going. Put that vision up over the wall there. That's my target for five years from now. Okay? Then I'm going to assess where I am today. This is my current condition. And now I'm going to map out a course to step from here to there. That's the essence of strategic planning. So it's long-term, it's high-level, big picture, but it doesn't lose sight of the details. It's a team process because it embraces diversity. Nobody's got a lock on all the perspectives. Everybody's got something to offer. Finally, it provides focus and boundaries. Now, I love the story about Herb Keller. He was at a cocktail party. Somebody comes up to him and says, Herb, you can make a lot of money flying internationally. Herb, without hesitation, turns to him and says, we do short haul. That's it. We do short haul. Now, what's he saying? He's saying, we have a plan. We know what our plan is, and we got strategic boundaries in place. We're not going outside the plan. 
We're going to execute the plan. I don't care what you think the opportunity is, we're doing our plan. That's what strategic thinking looks like in an organization. You are so clear and so focused on what you are supposed to do, and nothing is going to distract you from doing it. All right, the fourth building block is executional excellence. Now, this seems kind of intuitive, but it's really, really a significant step. Because here's where you've got to begin to think differently about your organization more than anything else, perhaps. And that is, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord. Did you just hear who your boss is? My boss is not who I thought it was. He's just an agent. My boss is the Lord. What I'm doing is working for him. So now if I'm working for him, does that change the way I work? Maybe when I'm tired, I still press through and get it done. Maybe I do that double check that I didn't want to do. Maybe I go the extra mile. Maybe I do things that I would not normally do because I want to do it with excellence. So you've got to build a culture, a culture that has a sense of what it is to honor God with your work. Do you ever think about, I am pleased to show what I've done to the Lord? You think about that? I'm pleased for the Lord to see whatever work product I've produced. So we have to have in an organization that's really going to honor God with excellence, we've got to have the right people. Now, I have four qualifications that I use and I recommend to my clients. And actually, Dennis has these in his notes. He calls them laws of transformation. I call them the basic criteria for qualifying anybody for any job. You know, what happens when you need to hire somebody? Those of you that hired somebody, what's the first thing you do? Okay, well, first of all, you've got to run an ad, right? You've got to advertise in some way. Well, I suggest to you there's something you need to do before that. You need to sit down and write down the four C's and get clear in your mind as to what you want. The first C is calling. I want somebody that's called to be part of this organization. Do I believe that God's in charge? If I do, there's a person who is called to be here. I'm not looking for just a person. I'm looking for the person that's supposed to be here. Second thing is I'm looking for character. Because I know if I don't have character, I'm going to have worldview misalignment. Worldview misalignment is going to lead to conflict. And that's not going to be good. Do you realize conflict takes away useful energy from the organization to manage the conflict? So it reduces your ability to do excellent work. One of the questions I typically ask clients when I go in is, what level, what percentage of your peak efficiency are you operating at? In other words, where's the throttle? in this organization. Now, what do you think I typically hear? The really honest people, not the people living in la-la land, but the people that are really honest, have a good perspective of where their organization is. What do you think I hear? 40%. That is the typical response of the really honest president, CEO, general manager. My operation is operating at 40%. So my question then is, okay, why? Well, we got this problem over here and this problem over there. All these conflicts going on because we got the wrong people in the wrong slots. That's what's going on a lot of the times. Now, there can be other reasons as well. You know, you've got to develop people and mature people and all kinds of other things. But a lot of the reason why organizations function at such a low level is you've got the wrong people in the wrong slot. So character is huge. And character is a big reason why people are in the wrong slot because they don't have worldview alignment with you. Southwest Airlines... You don't stay there if you don't have worldview alignment with them. Okay? And you understand Southwest Airlines, so what's interesting about this, as far as I can tell, these senior executives are not Christians. All they do is practice the golden rule. That's their worldview. Wow. I mean, that's so simple. And look at the power of this thing. I'm going to show you at the end what happens. Anyway, the right people. First of all, calling, character. Third thing is capability. Capability. That's what most of us focus on. Well, I need an accountant. So you start writing down all the accounting skills that you need. Okay, that's what we do. And when we hire, we typically hire based on skills. I submit to you, that's the wrong basis. That is a criteria. It is not the criteria. You need the calling in there, and you need the character, and you need the capability, all three. You know what happens when you hire somebody that doesn't have a calling for your organization? There is no heart. You ever work with anybody that doesn't have a heart? Man, they don't want to get to work. They don't want to do the work. Nothing's going to happen very well. 
You want the calling there, the character alignment with you, and you've got to have the skill set. And then once you have that, you do the fourth C. You know what the fourth C is? Commissioning. Commissioning. That's where you, as the authority, are going to call them up, and you're going to basically lay hands on them and validate them. Now, you know, in Acts 6, there's a very interesting story there about the Grecian widows not being served food properly. So there was a protest. we got a problem here. And the apostles said, okay, we need to appoint people to take care of this food distribution. Y'all remember that story? Okay. Do you remember the criteria? Apostles told them to look for people, obviously among the called community, okay, the calling. Look for people who are full of the Holy Spirit. You think people full of the Holy Spirit got character? Yeah, I think that's the definition of character, is somebody full of the Holy Spirit. And the third thing was wisdom. Isn't that ability to get something done? Is wisdom? Okay. So the three C's are right there. That's the criteria the apostles used. And then what happened? The apostles commissioned them. They laid hands on them and prayed for them. Now we call that ordination in the church. If you do it in the church, it's ordination. If you do it in the business world, it's not ordination, is it? Okay. Why wouldn't it be ordination? If it's ordination in the church, why didn't ordination in business? We need to get a vision to ordain people to their jobs. Wow. If we believe in a seamless garment... Do we believe in that? We need to start thinking about releasing people. You know when a person is commissioned to do something, you know what happens? So when the obstacles come, they persevere. Because they know they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. This is to which I am called. And you know, you can't be self-called. The commissioning has to be by an authority figure outside of you, laying hands on you and saying, this is what I see in you. I'm validating the call of God on your life. That is powerful. When you receive that commissioning, you are released to that job, whatever it is. How many in this room have been commissioned to do what you're doing? Had somebody in authority, maybe 20% of you, have had somebody in authority lay hands on you and pray for you and commission you to the task God's called you to do. I submit to you, we need to encourage our churches to start teaching the commissioning power of God in the marketplace. Okay, with this, when you get the right people, suddenly you know what you're going to have? You're going to have innovation. If you allow them to be who they're supposed to be, you let them go, you're going to have innovation. You're going to have productivity because you're going to have people lined up to accomplish what's done. You understand that all organizations are fundamentally the same. I don't care what it is. It's basically where two or more people have come together to accomplish a mission. That's the definition of an organization. That's all it is. That's all it is. And we've got to get it. If we're going to be productive, the people that come together have got to be equally yoked. They've got to be called of God. They've got to have C4 to be in that organization. Finally, learning. Okay, we need a learning environment. We need to value individual growth. We need to allow people to expand and grow. And we need to be willing to pay for mistakes. That's a huge one. I run into this all the time with clients when I start talking about paying for mistakes. They say, wait a minute. You know, I'm not interested in paying for mistakes. I say, if you're not interested in paying for mistakes, you're not interested in growing. It's not going to happen. You are going to make mistakes. Your people are going to make mistakes. You've got to be willing to pay for the mistakes. Southwest Airlines, because of their environment, is consistently the low-cost producer in the market. Consistently. Finally, the last step here is customer and client validation. Let another praise you, not your own lips. Someone else, not your own lips. What this is saying to us is nobody can self-validate. Nobody. We desperately need feedback. I often have people come up to me after I speak like this and say, how did it go? Now, how do you, what do you think I say? I don't know. I don't have a clue how it went. Because you have to tell me how it went. I learned this the hard way. About 20 years ago, I had the privilege of speaking in the church that we were in, the senior teacher there would frequently ask me to speak when he was gone on a trip or something. So I had numerous opportunities to speak. And I remember I'd put together a message. I mean, I'd spend hours. I'd spend 20, 30 hours putting this message together. I'd come and deliver it. And I would think I was so eloquent and so clear and so compelling. And then I'd go talk to people afterwards and they didn't understand a thing I said. <laughs> what is going on here? And then the next Sunday, maybe I'd come in and I'd deliver this message. And I think, oh, I just fumbled and stumbled. And man, I, I was tongue-tied. I didn't say what I wanted to say. I didn't say how I wanted to say it. Everything went wrong. And then I'd go to people and i said, wow, that was great. That really blessed me. I'm saying, how did that bless you? <laughs> 
Well, then I discovered the Holy Spirit. So I don't have a clue what the Holy Spirit is saying to you. So you have to tell me how I do. That's the way it is with Dennis. That's the way it is with Norm. All the speakers here, the only way they know how they're doing is you tell them. The true test of a value proposition, and by the way, every organization has a value proposition. Okay, I'm giving you a product or service in return for value returned. That's all a value proposition is. Everybody's got a value proposition. The true test is the customer. I can never validate mine. Southwest Airlines, because of its fanatical following of one biblical principle, they are the most profitable airline in history. It is the only airline that consistently makes money year in, year out. For over 30 years, it has made money every year, including 2001, when the rest of the airline industry was in the ditch. Because they do one thing, and they do it fanatically. They practice the golden rule. My question is this, what would it be like if Southwest Airlines were led by godly men who embraced all of the counsel of God? What would it be like? Lord, give me, before I die, an opportunity to see that. I would love to see that. That would be powerful. Let's get back to Africa. In 1867, three years after the Scottish Presbyterians had abandoned their mission statement, they allowed a missionary by the name of James Stewart to come on the scene, and he said, look, you've abandoned your facility here. Can I use it for a school? And they said, fine, go for it. So he came in, and he began to teach the people life skills. He began to say, look, instead of living in squalor like this, you know, we can get you some nice little huts here where you could get out of the weather. We can make clothes here. Let me show you how to make clothes. Let me show you how to farm and how to harvest crops and how to prepare the food so you can eat you know, more nutritious foods. Let me show you how you can make roads and how you can take the rivers here and we can turn generators and make electricity. And so over the next 40 years, he began to teach the people these life skills. And as he taught the people these life skills, you know what he was doing? He was teaching them the Bible. That's what he was doing. He was teaching them how to live based on a biblical worldview. So at the end of that time, you know what he had? He had a community of Christians. He had a community of Christians. He had done what the evangelists were not able to do. The evangelists for 40 years had tried to just pass out the four spiritual laws. It didn't work. But now you come in and you begin to really help people learn how to live. You begin to impart life. And you begin to tell them where that life is coming from. They are all gravitating toward Jesus Christ and accepting him as their Savior. And now the community is totally changed. It is now a prosperous model community. And it's impacting the neighboring communities. They're blessing themselves and those that are around them because they embraced a biblical approach to building a great organization. Did you all hear that? The power of integrated Christianity. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about this book is the handbook for everything we do. Can we get that? That is very hard, I know, because it's so contrary to everything you've been taught. But I submit to you, that is indeed what is real. Nelson Mandela, more than a century after James Stewart died, you know what he called him? Called him the model Christian. You ever been called the model Christian? Lord, I'd like to be called a model Christian. Somebody look at me and see the fruit of my life is so compelling and so blesses others that they could say, that's the way a Christian ought to live. Lord, give us the grace to do that. Kingdom management brings life-changing transformation to all of life and is the greatest method of evangelism. Christianity is not just about evangelism and ethics. It is certainly about that, but it is far more than that. It embraces principles, practices, and values for all of life. Many Christians simply place a Christian wrapper around worldly practice. I hope that you see the fallacy of that approach. You cannot sanctify the world's ways by simply labeling them in some other way or saying, I'm a Christian and surely God will bless the work of my hands. God blesses alignment with him. Many think that Christianity in the marketplace is nothing more than evangelism and ethics. Have I disabused you of that perspective? I pray that I have. It is so much more than that. I am very concerned about the marketplace movement in this country because this is pretty much where most of the people are. With the exception of 
this organization right here, I'm not seeing a clear, compelling perspective of integrated Christianity in any of the other movements. I see little glimpses of it here and there, but basically what I keep hearing when I go to conferences, I read literature, is evangelism and ethics. And do you hear it's much more than that? Has everybody got that? Kingdom management is an integrated approach to operating organizations that embraces the principles, practices, and values of the king. And finally, our only true kingdom management brings life-giving transformation. Lord, give us the grace. Give us the grace today to embrace you at such a level, embrace your reality at such a level, that we truly can become model Christians. That people will look at us and they will see Jesus Christ in everything we do. The way we live our personal lives. The way we conduct our families. The way we manage our businesses. The way we govern our societies will just exude of what it is to walk with you in the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, give us the grace to live at that level. So Father, to that task we commit ourselves. And we say thank you, Lord, for the privilege of knowing you and the Son that you sent to die for our sins. In Jesus' name, amen.